Good afternoon, brothers. We're going to get started in our afternoon session. This particular session will be on the pastoral prayer. If this is where you intended to be, you are in the right place. Uh, if not, here's your opportunity to get to where you're getting. <laughs> it's a joy to be here. It's a joy to be with you, and it's a joy for us to talk together about this subject. I was asked to address the subject of the pastoral prayer, and I hope that you will hear during this breakout reminders of things that you already know. Uh, I hope that you will be challenged to take your prayer life more seriously, both personally and publicly. And I pray more specifically, hope and pray more specifically, that you'll uh, be moved and motivated to be more intentional in your times of pastoral prayer as you lead your congregation to the throne of grace. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and we'll dive into our time. Father, we thank you for this day. We give you thanks and praise for all of your kindnesses to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for bringing us together again for this Shepherds Conference and for what we have already heard and learned and experienced and for all that you have in store for us over the course of the remainder of this day and throughout this week. We thank you for the meal that we have just had and ask that you would renew our strength, focus our minds, and ready our hearts to think your thoughts after you. And I pray that you would guide my words, help me to speak faithfully and clearly, and help us, Lord, to, even by our time together on this practical topic, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory. Amen. The pastoral prayer is what we'll discuss, and we'll address various passages along the way. You remember Acts chapter 6, where as the early church rapidly grew, a dispute arose about the care of needy widows. Management-minded leaders would have viewed this budding conflict as an organizational problem that needed to be fixed. The apostles were wiser than that. They recognized much more was at stake. Racial tensions threatened the spiritual unity of the early church. The apostles addressed the dispute as spiritual warfare. In much the same way they addressed earlier matters of persecution and moral corruption in the church. In Acts 6, they called the entire congregation together and instructed the saints, you remember, to select seven respected, wise, and spirit-filled men to appoint over this daily distribution of food. But during this congregational meeting, the apostles also clarified their own role for the church. They said in verse 3 of Acts 6, it is not right 
that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 2. Of course, the apostles were not celebrity preachers who were above serving tables. And verse 2 is not in any way meant to indicate that they were indifferent toward the physical needs of the poor widows. The apostles had a specific and strategic role to play in the life of the church, and they were determined to play where the coach put them. And so in Acts 6, 4, they said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Many read this opening narrative from Acts chapter 6 as a prototype for the office and ministry of deacons and at the same time neglect the example this passage sets for pastors and teachers. I commend to you that Acts 6 and 4 states the heart of pastoral ministry. We are not to devote ourselves, brothers, to ministerial busy work. Church administration, ministry programs, institutional gatekeeping, ecclesiastical prominence, social issues or platform building. Pastors who are faithful to their calling devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Every Christian, of course, is to live in obedience, submission, and devotion to the Word of God. But spiritual leaders are to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we affirm verse 16, we should not neglect verse 17. Paul details the spiritual profitability of God's Word so that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. Devotion to the Word of God does not, of course, cancel out our other pastoral responsibilities, But confidence in and commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture should be the fuel and the focus and the foundation of pastoral ministry. I know I'm preaching to the choir in this regards. We here agree that pastors should devote themselves to the ministry of the Word. That's why we have come this week. We agree that we should be devoted to the ministry of the Word. We would further agree that a pastor who is not devoted to the Word of God should not be a pastor. But the sad indictment is that many of us pastors who are obviously and stubbornly devoted to the Word of God are not as devoted to prayer. And I just want to lean into verse 6, chapter 6, verse 4 of Acts again, just to remind us that the, it calls for a both and devotion, not an either-or devotion. We ought to be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And note that the apostles mentioned prayer before the ministry of the Word. 
This does not indicate that prayer is more important than Scripture. It does emphasize that prayer is no less important than our devotion to Scripture. Faithful and fruitful ministry is to be characterized by both believing prayer and biblical preaching. To debate which is more important is to miss the point. If you are flying on a plane 30,000 feet in the air, which is more important, the left wing or the right wing? If either wing malfunctions, you are going down. But all too often, we as pastors try to maintain cruising altitude in our ministries with only one wing. We are devoted to the Word, but we neglect prayer. Again, Acts 6-4 summarizes the work of pastoral ministry as devotion to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And there's a sense in which I subcategorize these two, prayer and the ministry of the Word, in terms of private and public. In the private chambers of our own praying ground, we should unceasingly pray for the saints in our congregation. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Likewise, pastoral counseling, in a way, should be viewed as private ministry of the Word. In, in a real sense, we should consider pastoral counseling as doing personally and privately for an individual believer, what we do publicly and corporately for the congregation as a whole. Pastoral counseling should be rooted in biblical exposition that explains and applies scriptural truth for the believer. And even though there are private dynamics to Acts 6 and 4, the verse primarily addresses the pastor's public ministry. The pastor's public ministry is threefold, if you will. It involves music, preaching, and prayer. I want to add music to this conversation just in passing. Music consumes the most time in our corporate worship services after preaching. And I just bring it up to remind us that the pulpit should not be divorced from the choir loft. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. From all that we could take away from that verse, I believe the core lesson of Colossians 3.16 is that music in worship should be an extension of the ministry of the word. We should be as diligent in ensuring that the church does not sing error as we are ensuring that the pulpit does not teach error. Laying the music aside, our focus in public ministry as pastor teachers is preaching and prayer. Of course, preaching is the primary, central, and definitive work of the pastor. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, I charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. But I want to lean in this hour to say that prayer is also essential to the pastor's public ministry. I think every preacher ought to have a historical hero. My historical hero is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He is rightly called the Prince of Preachers. More of his sermons have been published than any other preacher in church history. In fact, recently, even lost sermons of Spurgeon's have been published. The church today remembers Spurgeon for his pulpit and his pen. But many who had the privilege of attending the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London left those services more moved by Spurgeon's prayers than by his sermons. Spurgeon nurtured a praying church, but it started with a praying pulpit. Brothers, can that be said of your pulpit? Remember, as Jesus cleansed the temple, he declared, it is written, my house shall be called a what? A house of prayer. And that priority of prayer didn't end with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The New Testament church should be a house of prayer. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The church should be a house of prayer. And a person should not have to attend a small group, a prayer meeting, or a special event to see the church's devotion to prayer. It should be evident on the Lord's day when God's people gather for worship. In my travels, I know the disturbing neglect of many places of both the public reading of Scripture, and public corporate prayer. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul instructs Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And yet there is very little Bible reading in many local churches. There is also, alongside of that, a shocking absence of public and corporate prayer. I speak in places where I am specifically asked to pray at the beginning or the end, not for the sake of prayer, but to make sure that's a smooth transition for the band to get on the stage or off the stage. And I don't think we recognize that our prayerlessness may be a leading cause for the division and impotence and worldliness of our churches. That old axiom is still true, brothers. Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. But I contend that devotion to prayer must start in the pulpit. It is good and right and wise for churches to have dedicated prayer meetings. 
Whatever happened to the prayer meetings? But if there is not a formal prayer meeting, the church should pray when it meets. And the pastor should lead the way. Our worship services should be filled with prayer, various kinds of prayer, but the central prayer time should be the pastoral prayer. Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, I feel we should be reminded of before we go any further, where Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen of others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The the point of those instructions is unmistakable. Jesus makes it clear the secret to prayer is secret prayer. But these instructions do not forbid or condemn public prayer. It warns us to guard against our pride, our vanity, and even our hypocrisy. The little Pharisee in us that is tempted to turn prayer before God into a performance for man. This warning should doubly concern pastors and teachers whose responsibility it is to lead the gathered people of God to the throne of grace. And so maybe the first direct thing I want to say about the pastoral prayer is to encourage you to take time to prepare your pastoral prayer. I was blessed to grow up in a praying church. practice in the church I grew up in was that the prayers were extemporaneous. And I still look fondly back at those times of prayer. They were many times sincere and fervent and powerful. But because many times prayers were not planned or prepared, they easily fell into vain repetition. There were some of us young people in the church who could literally pray with some of the preachers and deacons when they prayed because they prayed the same prayer every time we basically memorized their prayers. In this talk, I am not advocating for the other extreme prayers that are dryless, lifeless, and re- dry, lifeless and rehearsed. But I just would warn us that we should not lead our people to the throne of grace in some thoughtless, frivolous, or irreverent manner. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 3 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. If this warning applies to the assembled people of God, how much does it apply as well to us who lead God's people in prayer? Our pastoral prayers should be simple, 
sincere, spiritual, scriptural, and solemn. And this requires some time of personal preparation for your pastoral prayer. None of us would debate that we should prepare ourselves before we speak for God in the worship. But I contend we should also prepare ourselves as we prepare to speak to God in worship. Well-prepared prayers, or what the Puritans called studied prayers, honors the Lord and helps the saints. Many young and new Christians learn to pray by listening to older and mature Christians pray. And so our, our preaching should model how to handle Scripture But our prayers should model how to address the Heavenly Father. Terry Johnson wrote, public prayer, while addressed to God, is for public edification and instruction. It is another kind of pulpit speech closely related to preaching. And so for this reason, again, I encourage you to take some time to plan your pastoral prayer. I say that as one who was convicted on this matter, um, reading some time ago a chapter on the subject where the author just mentioned he spends on average 45 minutes preparing his pastoral prayer. And I had to ask myself, H.B., do you spend that much time thinking about how you will lead the congregation to the throne of grace? I would not lay on you any legalistic standard of time or preparation, but I'm, I'm pleading with you to consider taking the time to plan your prayers. And as you do so, consider these factors. Your language in your pastoral prayer should be simple and direct. The disciples' prayer, the model prayer, the Lord's prayer is so profound that none of us really can reach anywhere near the depths of what Jesus teaches there, and yet the language itself is simple and direct. Your prayers should not be so eloquent that people feel they could never do that. In Luke 11, remember, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray after observing Jesus himself in prayer. It was something about hearing Jesus pray that moved and motivated the disciples to pray. And similarly, our prayers should encourage our people to pray. We should model simple and direct address to God in prayer. Over the last few years, I've really taken the time to start writing out my pastoral prayers to think through on paper uh, and I'm, I'm learning still to just practice simple and direct language to God in prayer as I lead the congregation and to fight against the temptation to get preachy in my prayers. You know what I mean. Which also adds that this, that our language in our pastoral prayer should not only be simple and direct, the language should be God-centered. Preaching and 
praying go together, but preaching and praying are not the same thing. Your pastoral prayer should not be a sermon. Yes, I'm advocating for you to plan your prayers, but that does not mean stuffing the material you couldn't fit into your sermon into your pastoral prayer. You should pray for the sermon. You should pray about the truths and the promises and the commands of the text. But avoid using the pastoral prayer as a sermonette. As a boy, I heard a sermon on the 23rd Psalm that I would never forget. The pastor called the message, Two Types of God Talk. And he basically outlines Psalm 23 to basically say that David begins by talking about God and then he moves to talking to God. I I have not forgotten that message. And it really began for me a love affair with the Psalms. And in the Psalms, which I would commend to you as a treasure resource for prayer preparation, The language is not just in Psalm 23, but throughout the Psalms, God-centered. It is to God and about God. And and our prayers, our, our public prayers, our pastoral prayers should be filled with language that is God centered. One way to ensure that our prayers are God centered is to ensure that our prayers are scriptural. That's the next thing I would say. Your pastoral prayer should be scriptural. Use scriptural language in prayer. And by this, I don't, I don't mean merely quoting scripture back to God. I mean that your prayer should be filled with the language of scripture. For that to happen, You really do need, brothers, a robust devotional life that is filled with Scripture reading, Scripture meditation, and Scripture, even Scripture memorization. The Word of God will not flow from you if it does not first flow into you. May we be the blessed man of Psalm 1, verse 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. Each week I spend my life with a text. And it has become, it's for that reason, important that my, my sermon preparation and my word work during the week is, is done in a devotional matter, manner. I don't want to approach the Scripture just looking for an outline to preach Sunday. As I'm preparing, I I want God's Word to speak to my heart. And so I endeavor to prepare each week in a devotional manner, but I still deem it necessary in my own life to have a time of prayer and Bible intake that is not connected to my sermon preparation. I believe, brothers, it's vital that we have a time in the Word that is not utilitarian. It is not, I'm, st- I'm in the Word, in this Word, 
because I have to talk about this in a few days. We need to just spend time in God's Word and, and feed our own souls on the, on the riches of Scripture. But yet even doing that inevitably has a positive influence on your public ministry, both in your preaching and in your prayers. To help you pray in the language of the Scriptures. You should also use corporate language in your pastoral prayer. Public prayer is not simply private prayer relocated. Public prayer is corporate prayer. And as we lead in prayer, we must remember that we are praying for the saints and on behalf of the saints and with the saints. We should acknowledge these realities by using corporate language in prayer. Plural pronouns. Is that not how Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Not my Father, but what? Our Father. Our daily bread. Our debts. Us not into temptation. Us from evil. He doesn't teach us to pray, I, me, my. But us, we, our. And that should be reflected in our pastoral prayers. My own prayer life has been greatly helped by studying both the Psalms in the Old Testament and the prayer reports of Paul in the New Testament. Throughout his letters, Paul not only tells his readers that he's praying for them, but he tells them what he's praying for them. And as he prays, you'll, as you study those prayers of Paul, those prayer reports of Paul in the New Testament, you'll notice that Paul does not focus on physical or material or financial concerns. He prays with spiritual priorities. That would be the next principle of practice I would commend to you in pastoral prayer. Pray with spiritual priorities. He didn't pray about the circumstances. It's obvious in his letters. He was aware of the circumstances the church faced. He is obviously concerned about the issues the saints face, but that's not how his prayers were focused. The prayers of Paul indicate that he recognized that if something is not right in the life of the the saints, or if something is not right in the life of the church, the heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. So Paul's New Testament prayer reports address heart-level issues, and this should be how we pray for our people. It's an important example for us to set for our church. And in too many instances, I was, I was blessed to grow up in the church. There was a weekly altar call every week. The pastor, one of the pastors said, if, there, if there's a, just for prayer, if, there's an, if you want the pastor to pray for you, just come and they meet at the altar. We'd sing a hymn and the pastor would pray. But most of those prayers every week 
was for the sick, the shut-in, and the grieving. And when that's all the focus of our pastoral prayers, it makes a statement to the church. It's not, not healthy. It, you know, the little boy was riding home from church one Sunday and asked his parents, is the Lord mad at the bereaved family? Because every week we praying for the bereaved family. <laughs> Somebody die in the bereaved family every week. And in some instances, our pastoral prayers, you, you don't need a bulletin. The pastoral prayer will just be a list of who's in the hospital, who's out of town. The pulpit is the anchor of the work of the church. And that should be reflected not just in our preaching, but in our prayers. And I commend that while we pray for the sick and the shut-in and the grieving, that, that should not be the only focus of our prayers. I commend to you the planning of your pastoral prayer to encourage you to be praying about everything and everyone in the congregation. Not, don't take anything I've just said to suggest you should not pray for the sick and the suffering and the sorrowful. Pray for the saints by name and by need, most definitely. But we are not using our pastoral prayers strategically if we only pray for the sick and the grieving. Too often, that's the case. We should, we should be praying for the various areas and needs and spiritual issues in the life of our church. Not just for those who are going through. Often, we are quick to pray for those who are obviously weak and slow to pray for those who are apparently strong. Some time ago, we had an interesting elders conversation where we just began to discuss areas of our life of our church where we know there are issues where members have that we, we don't regularly pray for publicly. And that we need to be more intentional about our prayers to make sure we are covering the various needs and issues of our church in prayer. What should we pray in these pastoral prayers? Let me spend the rest of our time speaking to that. And I don't have anything in that regard profound or new. I I learned to use the Acts model as a young Christian in my prayers. Help me to structure my personal private prayers to God. Acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It is still how I structure prayers in my private times with God. It's just kind of a part of the rhythm I'm not conscious of it, but it's really the rhythm of my prayer. But it is also how we should think about our prayers publicly. The pastoral prayer should be a prayer of adoration. 
Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. We should begin our pastoral prayers in grateful praise to God for who he is and what he has done. Philippians 4, 6 states the privilege of prayer in two words. In everything. Isn't that glorious, brothers? You could pray about everything. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 4 and 6, do not be anxious about anything. Instead, be prayerful about everything. Nothing, he says, is worth worrying about. Everything is worth praying about. Take everything off of your worry list and put it on your prayer list. What a privilege. It is a reminder that prayer is not a burdensome duty to obey. It is a wonderful privilege to enjoy. There is nothing too small for God to care about. There's nothing too big for God to handle. But we should not model in our pastoral prayers the kind of prayer that rushes into God's presence with a grocery list of personal requests. How do you feel about the people in your life that you only hear from when they want something? We should not treat God that way in prayer. Psalm 100 verses 4 and 5 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is what? Good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So the pastoral prayer should be a prayer of adoration. It should also be a prayer of confession. A prayer of confession. Our prayers should be honest with God about our sins. I would commend Psalm 51, Psalm 32 as great examples of penitential prayers. As we lead our people to the throne of grace, we should confess both our sins and our sinfulness to God. The confession of sin should be corporate. The us, we, our factor should apply when we are confessing our sins before God in pastoral prayer. The confession of sin should be specific. We should model that in pastoral prayer. Too too often, Christians sin retail and try to confess wholesale. And it skips over repentance. The confession of sin should be penitent. 
It should not be merely a prayer for cheap grace. Where I ask the Lord for mercy while, I, while we keep con- continuing to do what we do. In that regard, again, Psalm 51 is a great model of this. He not only asked the Lord to forgive him, he asked the Lord to change him. The confession of sin should be scriptural. In our prayers, we should call sin what the Bible calls it. And the confession of sin should be redemptive. And by redemptive, I mean that the confession of sin should be accompanied by the assurance of pardon through the finished work of Jesus Christ. First John chapter one, verse nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, the Two verses later, chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 John addresses the two things every Christian needs to know about sin. There's a whole theology of sin in one verse. John says, basically, there's two things you need to know about sin. Here's the first thing you need to know about sin. Don't do it. But then secondly, he says, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. And so our confession of sin in public prayer should be accompanied by the assurance of pardon through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The pastoral prayer should be a prayer of adoration, a prayer of confession. It should be a prayer of thanksgiving. We should thank God publicly for his goodness and mercy and kindness to us as his people. But beyond the specific thanksgiving we give to God for his obvious blessings on us, thanksgiving should be modeled in pastoral prayer as an essential element of believing prayer. Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with all thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 16 through 18 says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Those passages are not commending after the fact prayer, uh, Thanksgiving that is, where you pray about it and wait on God to answer and come back and tell him, thank you, you should do that. But these passages are not merely commending after the fact Thanksgiving. It's before the fact and during the fact and after the fact. We should thank God as we pray. We should thank God before we an- he answers. We should thank God as we wait on him to move. And then it should be a prayer of supplication. The pastoral prayer should be a prayer of 
adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. If I'm asked why pray, I have two essential, fundamental, critical answers to that question. Number one, you should pray because the Word of God commands it. Secondly, you should pray because, hold on to your seat, brothers, it works. Isn't that good news? Prayer works. I like to say it this way. It happens after prayer. God is so kind. There are kindnesses he shows us <laughs> that we don't even ask for. We don't even think about. But there are specific things that God withholds until we express our dependence and confidence in him on, in, through believing prayer. In other words, there's a lot of things we could do to help the situation after we pray. There is nothing you could do to help the situation until you pray. When we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. Matthew 7, 7 says it this way. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That verse contains both commands to obey and promises to believe. And thus our pastoral prayers should model trust and obedience. We should ask God. We should seek. We should knock. And model that in our public prayers. May I commend to you the last section of this, five areas of intercession that should be included in your pastoral prayer. When we get to this matter of presenting our needs before God, biblically and historically, there are five areas of intercession you should regularly be including in your pastoral prayer. You should pray, first of all, for the government. Pray for civil authorities. Is that not what 1 Timothy 2 tells us? First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Friends, listen to what Paul is saying there. Prayer influences thrones. Most likely none of us here will be invited into the Oval Office to advise the president, but you can go to the throne of grace and pray for those who are in authority over us. So it's important that my congregation regularly hears me pray for our mayor and our government, governor and our president by name. I pastor a black Baptist church, and they talk back in prayer. You leading in prayer, and they say, yes, Lord, do it, Lord. You able, Lord. Yes, Lord. And I said, Lord, pray for our government, and gets quiet. <laughs> Which is just another reminder to me how significant it is that the saints hear me leading us in prayer for those who are in authority over us 
whether we voted for them or not. I believe Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the Lord's hand, and he turns it whichever way he wills. All of those so-called authorities, they are in the Lord's hands. And we should pray for them. Let me just add this quickly as I move on. For this reason, I don't feel the need as a pastor to make formal statements about all the various issues that come up in the news. But I regularly include these matters that I know are on my people's mind in my pastoral prayer. I hope that it models that we should be praying about these matters and how we should be praying about these matters. Pray for the government. Secondly, pray for the gospel. We should pray for Christian ministry and missionaries in our pastoral prayers. Romans 10.13 is a wonderful promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then it is followed by dilemmas that prevent lost people from calling on the Lord for salvation. How can you call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You should pray that God would sin. We should pray for open doors for the Word. That's what Paul asks for in in Colossians 4, verse 3. He says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the Word. I love that. Colossians, you know, is one of the prison epistles of Paul. He says, these prison doors may not be open, but pray that even if the prison stays shut, God is able to open a door for the Word. We should pray for other local churches. Pray for missionaries. We are quick to quote Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. But Jesus told us what to do about that. Matthew 9, 38. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray for civil authorities. Pray for gospel advancement. Pray for lost people. Pray for lost people. Romans 10.1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. We started this conference by hearing a remarkable word from Romans chapter 9. But after Paul finishes his argument in Romans 9, he begins chapter 10 by saying that in light of all of this, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. The truth of the sovereignty of God in salvation moved Paul to pray that the lost would be saved. 
And as we, we should pray publicly then for the salvation of the lost. Later in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. As we pray for the lost, let me add that we should remember that there very well may be those in our congregation who walk in a false assurance of salvation. We should be praying that God will pull down strongholds. Pray that he pulls down the stronghold of pride, the stronghold of procrastination, and the the stronghold of presumption. Fourthly, pray for the church. I know this is obvious, but as pastors, we should regularly pray for the church and not merely the programs or the activities or problems of the church. We should pray for the spiritual life, health, and growth of the church. There are three characteristics of a healthy church. Fidelity of doctrine. Holiness of life. Unity of fellowship. And so we should regularly be praying publicly about the the prioritization of sound doctrine, moral, holy living, and Christian unity in our local churches. John 17, 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so we should regularly be praying publicly for the regular ministry of the word. In recent weeks, a lot of tension has been placed on so-called revival. There are times when God does special works, but we should be praying for the regular means of grace. God is at work. When something doesn't seem spectacular going on in the life of the church, when the Word is being faithfully proclaimed, God is still at work. We should pray for the regular ministry of the Word. Again, this is where Paul's prayer reports in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, and other places are helpful for us. They model how to pray for the sanctification of the saints. And then lastly, pray for the afflicted. In our pastoral prayers, we should pray for the afflicted. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So, yes, it is good and right to pray for the personal needs of the gathered congregation, pray for the healing of the sick, for the comfort of the grieving, for the provisions of God for the needy, for wisdom for the confused, peace for the anxious, joy for the brokenhearted, strength for the weak. I flew to town early to attend the funeral at the church I grew up in. It began with the processional with the pastor leading the family down the aisle as he read Psalm 90. 
I was staggered by this. It is how I started funerals when I pastored that church. It was how I saw my father do it as a boy. As a, as a boy preacher, my dad would let me sometimes walk alongside him as he led the family in, and he'd say, read Psalm 90. Every time, read Psalm 90. One time I was slick and turned to Psalm 23. <laughs> and halfway down the aisle, he said, uh-uh, not that, son. Go to Psalm 90. Later, when I spent time in, for myself in Psalm 90, it all made sense, right? The prayer of Moses, the man of God, as the people of Israel wander in the wilderness, and he prays recognizing the frailty, the brevity, the sinfulness of human life. And actually, he doesn't really get to petitions till around verse 12 of that psalm where he says, and teach us to number our days that we may gain the heart of wisdom. As we pray for the afflicted, as we pray for the church, May we, as Moses did, not forget that life is short and eternity is coming. And the economy of Scripture is simply this. That which lasts the longest is worth the most. So while we pray for the afflicted, let's pray with gospel hope in our risen Savior who will have the last word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Help us to not just be men of the word, but men of prayer as well. Men who are devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. May that pour into our pastoral prayers for the saints that you have called us to serve. Help us to test what we've heard. Move our hearts, burden our hearts to take more seriously the strategic opportunity you give us each week to shepherd our people, not just through the Bible exposition, but through our pastoral prayers. And nurture in our congregation a people of prayer to the praise of your glory, we pray. Amen.